When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and on today's episode, we've got a U.S.-centric mailbag to get through, featuring the man, the myth, the legend, Breck Shea, USMNT <laughs> trades, Don Garber's prognostications, and much, much more. To answer those questions and more, I'm joined by two friends. Up first, a man who has me excited to buy tickets on the Josh Winder hype train. It's Joe Lowry. Hi, Joe. How many tickets should I be purchasing? And also, who is Josh Winder? Okay, so I think you should be purchasing several tickets. Cover your bases, snag one for you, snag one for the for the wife, snag one for the, the daughter. I think <laughs> that right. feels right. Joshua Winder, for folks out there who don't know, I think I think we're at the point where a lot of folks are going to know the name. And if they don't know it now, Taylor, they're going to know it by June. Because Josh Winder is a 17-year-old American center back playing for Louisville City, who in, in many ways is sort of the banner club for the USL Championship and he's also part of the U-20s, youth national team. So the World Cup is coming up in about a month, and there's a very real chance that he is on that roster. And there's an even realer chance that he's going to Benfica after he turns 18 when uh, when June rolls around. So that's been reported heavily. It, it very much seems like that's going to happen. He's already been there to train. He's He's a nice young player. He's a very nice young player. Probably the best prospect, maybe the best player, period, that the USL has produced. Uh, yeah, I, I read about him and more in your uh, the article you guys have on Backheeled, where you surveyed the different USL coaches, I believe it was. You got a few responses there. Joe, what was that like, uh, sending out surveys to coaches? That's not one I've done before. Uh, do you have to sell them, or is it something that people are willing to do pretty quickly? Uh, I think it depends on the level, right? I think there is very much a limit to what Send it you're out to able the Champions to do. League coaches. Carlo right. Enchilada gets right back to you. Right. No we, problem. We tried mm-hmm. to email Carlo Enchilada yesterday, and, and oh, everybody did. knows how that went at this <laughs> point. Right. So you know, it, it sort of depends on that. But no, they're they're great. Like uh, genuinely, I've had a lot of of fun working with the USL and working with coaches across the league and, and working with. Phoenix and all these different places. So it was fairly straightforward. There was, uh, so I sent out surveys to peel back the curtain through like Google survey or whatever that's called. And uh, initially forgot to uncheck the box that says it was collecting email addresses, which for an anonymous survey didn't make uh, folks too ah. happy. So we sort of rebounded from that very quickly. We came in stronger for attempt number two. And I think the article is like actually very good. We're going to talk about youth development later. And I think, you know, I learned some things about how American soccer youth development is going. And on the whole, it was, I think, a really, really useful thing. All right. I look forward to hearing more about that. I look forward to hearing more from our other uh, co-host rounding out the cruise today, a man who is driving a different hype train, a hype train of his own, the Flava Flav to Taha Habrun's uh, Chuck D. It's David Goss. Hi, David. I don't even know what that means. Mm-hmm. I'll start there. Also, You're the hype man for Taha Habrun, basically. Okay. Yeah, that feels good. That feels <laughs> right for me. He's amazing. So I'm happy to be that. He will be in a Joe Larry. 
backheeled written um, unknown survey very soon. Not probably on the USL, probably on MLS, but he's that good and I'm stoked about it. So this is a fun episode. We're just starting with all the future of America is yeah. bright. Super esoteric names to start. Who is he, by the way, for people who don't know? Oh. We got the Josh Winder introduction. Who is Taha Habrune? He Habrune, I think. Habrune? I, okay. It, this is probably one of those situations where he tells people how to say it wrong because he knows they can't say it right. Okay. And then you went and said it correctly, and now I'm making you look wrong. But in I, reality, I it. you're probably more world, worldly than the average <laughs> well, you're, person you're from in, Columbus. Your involvement on the show has made me get used to looking bad. It's fine. Oh, man. <laughs> I thought we were doing well. Although, <laughs> if you're bringing that up, I would like to add, mm. we talked about Josh Weiner on the show a couple weeks ago, I think in the USMNT convo. And someone DM'd yeah. me and said, huh, Taylor doesn't know who Josh Weidner is? What has he been paying <laughs> attention to? And I didn't want to bring it up, but now that you brought that up, I thought it was a good space. Did, did we talk about him or you mentioned him? Someone else also. Oh, I'm surprised. Gave I usually recognition listen to the other people. That they knew who he was. I see. Least. I see. Yeah. Unfortunately, the schedule gets kind of full with uh, 4,000 different leagues happening at the same time. <laughs> so that might be part of it. But uh, I also, I also think there's something to be said for just, acknowledging when you don't Love know it. a player when you don't Love know something so. pretending so. to know that you know somebody and talking uh out of your rear end about like how good they are i, I would rather hear what experts have to say and learn for myself maybe i will watch him maybe i won't i don't know i don't know i'm now now i'm i'm stubborn i'm, I'm going against no you can't you have to watch him he, josh okay, is fine. amazing um that by the way goes equal with when you casually know someone and you don't do the whole fake introduction thing you just pretend you know them i love that yeah. Like, let's not pretend, oh, we met that one time. Let's just go into it. Let's yeah. just start on third base and let's just move from there. I love it. I like it. <laughs> Who are you again? <laughs> David, David Goss, is it? Yes. Okay. It's Gass. Anyway. Taylor's pronounced oh, Gass. Gass. Also, Gass, my bad. Uh, Gass, I, I don't know who Taha is. I mean, I know who he is because I listened to the beginning of Extra Time. Yeah. But I don't know much about him. And I would like that question to be answered because it, I'm curious. Here you go. So he, I think a lot of people learned his name at the U17 World Cup qualifying. He played for the U.S., scored a bunch of goals. Um, he plays in central midfield for the Columbus Crew Academy. He They play with two eights, kind of. If you think now to what Wilfred Nance did in Montreal, that's probably closer to what you're seeing. So like a lone six with two eights in front of them. So some would say he's a 10, some would say he's an eight. And there's question marks there. But he's a tall, skinny, super skilled central midfielder. He can create for himself. He can beat guys on the dribble. But what... My favorite part of his game is his ability to see the whole field. And they played against Manchester United in the group stage at the GA Cup, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And in a five-minute span, twice, he was on the left side of the field in midfield. He opened up to switch the field. The entire set of 22 players thought it was 21, thought it was going one way. And he cut through balls back across his hips, through the lines, what should have been finished. Columbus did not have the finishers on the field to get him the counting stats that he deserved. And it was like one of those moments where you're sitting in a crowd of mainly scouts, agents, academy coaches, directors, front office people from around MLS. Everyone makes the same. Everyone's like, oh, my God. Like you hear the low mumble, but in unison. And you're like, this kid's special. So that's who Taha Habrun is. I believe he's of Moroccan descent. Um, And to add on all of this, he was fasting for Ramadan. So he was playing at 2.30 p.m. Eastern time and or 4.30 p.m. Eastern time in Florida in 86 degree weather with humidity 
Oof. And Iftar was after the game ended, so he was never able to drink water. And he think he ended up playing six games in nine days at like the highest level. That is impressive. slightly impressive to very impressive, especially because I think there are there are times in some uh, predominantly Muslim countries where they will sort of like reverse the schedule and basically yeah. people stay up all night and then sleep all day. It makes it easier to not eat when you're asleep. Uh, so I'm guessing he wasn't able to do that given uh, fixture congestion and the like. So that makes Oof. it even more of like a Herculean task. Well done, uh, Taha. And Joe, I think we talked about him when we talked about the U-17s yep. uh, a while back because he could not stop scoring. Uh, and it sounds like that uh, continues to be the case. Since we're on the topic, Goss, uh, w- how was GA Cup now that you returned? I heard you talk about it a little bit on Extra Time. You hyped up some a few different teams. Uh, a question I had, I'll, I'll leave it there. How was GA Cup to start? Great. It's my favorite week of the year. Now, it, this is only the second one since COVID. And then the first one that they've done in Florida. In the past, they'd all been at FC Dallas' center in Dallas. We got to get a trip. Like, other people have to come. Because uh, it this has sort of become combine. There is no real combine anymore. So, you know, club's front office, club scouts are all there, plus agents, plus the players and the coaches. Um, it is like a cool – cool is probably the wrong word because we're talking MLS and nerdy soccer. But it is the, like, <laughs> nebulous of the league for a week, plus you're watching the best young players in the world – And what's fun about teams and the way they're built with players this age is like you see some extremes where teams play so specific to their style because kids will listen to what their coaches say. So like when a Red Bull Youth Academy coach is like, we're going to press the full game, they actually do it. Where pros at some point are like, "Mm, I play in the Premier League, I'll decide when we press. I'm not pressing in the 35th minute you know, all out. And so you see like the extremes. And so watching the soccer is really fun. Plus you're right on the field. So you're listening to the coaches, you're listening to the players. Um, and like, that's really cool when you talk about possession rotations and um, you know, you, you see a team walk out and you're like, Oh, they're playing with a lone six. And then you can like watch the two eights on the other team, sit on their shoulders and try and trade off and move that midfielder. So all of that's really fun. Talking to people is really fun. And the players are really good because I think as you experience with the U-17 qualifying, they're not ground down completely by coaches yet. There's still flair. There's still individuality. Uh, there's still probably a lack of understanding of cost-benefit analysis at times, which means you get some fun stuff and you get some cool stuff. And also, this is their big moment. Like, the not just the MLS teams. I told this story, I think, on a broadcast, but I believe it was Atletico Paranaense who one Copa Libertadores last year or a loss in the final. One of the two, they're one of the premier academies in Brazil. They were, the, I believe, the first to build a residency. So, like, they are a cutting-edge academy. They came and won GA Cup five, six, seven years ago, whatever it was. And after the game, I drove by a McDonald's, and they were, in, they were like, packed into the McDonald's. Are we sponsored by McDonald's? Do we have an opposing sponsor I need to mention here? <laughs> uh, I, I don't believe so. If you want, actually, if you want to throw out a Burger King. Okay, okay. so they were, were in a Burger King. King. <laughs> yeah. And so after the, the after that, I saw the coach in the lobby, and I was like, We're what? a Zaxby's family, by the way. Thank you very much. <laughs> but anyway, That's continue. beyond me. Uh, I was like, what's going on? And he said when they got accepted to GA Cup, as a club and as a team, they made a promise that they were going to win it. And so every player made a promise that they wouldn't eat fast food and junk food until (laughs) after they won the championship. So this isn't just an MLS thing. 
Like for mm-hmm. the foreign clubs, they don't travel that often. They don't play against the teams they're playing against, both in MLS, but also like it's a big deal for them to play against Manchester United. That's not normal for Flamengo and not normal for clubs from other countries. So all of it's like a massive deal for these players. And it's cool to see them on that platform. And like when, you know, anytime you watch a special athlete rise to the pressure, like that's sort of what we're all signed up for. Okay, guys, I have two questions for you. The first is, uh, if we're planning a GA Cup trip for next year, is there shade? This is a yes or no answer, because if I'm going, um, I, I'm going to need some shade. So where are we at on shade? There is shade available. Great. You will have Perfect. to be rotating throughout the day as the sun moves. Yeah, um, that's fine. But there will be sunscreen as well. Great. Okay, that's all I needed to know. The second question is, how many of these players, we talk about them and, and, and watching them, I'm sure, is an enjoyable experience. I've, I've watched a, a good amount of academy soccer on the sidelines here in Arizona as well. Like, How many of them are we going to know in five years? Like, like either a percentage or a number? What has history told us about how much really, as far as youth development goes and pro production, this actually matters? I think it's a great question. Um, so I went back to 2018 in my records and r- ran through a um, alumni of the tournament, alumnus of the tournament. And from 2018 on, you are seeing two to three players per team. So like a decent number. And that's, you know, that's for 2018. So then you bring mm-hmm. in 2019. That's another class. So there's a pretty good chance that every club that was at GA Cup will have someone in Major League Soccer. And I think that 2018 number is massively higher than 2015. Because that's where you're starting to see the break of went to college. Most of the team went to college to now most of the team will go into MLS Next Pro or went into USL and will go into the first team. So I would say two to three per team. The big ones like 2018, DC United's team was Brian Ko, who anyone who follows USL will know is one of the big names and has been sold to Europe. Jacob Green, who has started the last two games in MLS. Griffin Yao. Moses Nyman and Kevin Paredes. They didn't get out of their group. Just its own conversation that has to be had. But like that is that is a non winning team at GA Cup. And that's the class of talent that you can see in some of these sides. So when you look at RSL, right, RSL pretty consistently, their roster is homegrown guys, whether it's backups, whether it's fullbacks, whether it's, you know, the backup center forward, whatever it is, those guys are all homegrowns. Those guys are all coming out of this tournament. So this is the closest we've ever been to like, yeah, the value is you will know these players first and then all of the stars. At this point, even guys who go over to Europe and play in academies start here. And so like the entire U.S. men's national team is coming out of this tournament and a large part of the Canadian men's national team is coming out of this tournament as well. What are the substitution rules? A very minor question, but I'm curious. Is it yeah, so rolling subs or do you only have the limit? You, It's seven. Okay. So it's not rolling, but it's 60-minute games until the final. So seven subs, three moments, mm-hmm. halftime doesn't count going in. You pretty much see the entire roster every time. That's the toughest part of this, and that, I think that's always the only toughest part. It's like the teams who win, maybe they're not the best teams. You know, it's they technically they play these shortened games. You're playing so many games in a week, like it becomes a little bit tough to see. But normally, I test, you know, where the talent is. 
Joe, my, my question for you is with these Tuesday shows, do you feel like like you get bullied by the Euro snobs on the Monday show and then Tuesday you finally get to talk about like young Americans in the USL and GA Cup and your MLS weekend that was? Yeah. Uh, a, little, a small part of me does, in fact, feel like that. Like, I, I very much do enjoy the Tuesday shows. I love I love Mondays because I get to roast Ryan for how Charlotte FC performed over the weekend. Um, and Graham gets to talk about pies or Sterling and Albion, Sterling Albion actually being good. Like, there are pluses all the way around. But I do like diving in deep and, and nerdy on the Tuesday shows. Uh, well, let's keep that going then, Joe. Since we've indulged uh, the GA Cup for a moment, let's indulge your MLS weekend. Uh, you got to talk about Bowanga yesterday. Anything yeah. else you'd like to discuss today? So I hit I hit a lot of the big ones yesterday. We talked about New York Red Bull San Jose and talked about the the racism that we now know has has really been confirmed. The racist slur or word or phrase that Dante Van Zier used uh, against the Quakes and a number of statements came out yesterday about that. Folks can go read them on Twitter. I think they left almost everyone wanting more. So we talked about that and there's a little update on that front. Talked about Dennis Buanga, who I, I still cannot get over how good that hat trick was. I don't know if I mentioned Seattle beating St. Louis or not. If I didn't, that was a mistake. But Seattle uh, looked looked good against St. Louis. I, I don't think they were dominant. They were relatively even in the first half. It took until the 65th minute in a really nice strike from outside the box from Josh Atencio to get them into the lead. And then they started attacking into space and they had a little bit more room to work. And Seattle just did Seattle stuff. What I wanted to hit on today's show, oh, we also did the Galaxy yesterday, which is a comedy of errors right now from the leadership side. It's, it is unreal. What I wanted to do today, though, is mention two teams, not in a ton of detail, but two teams that I think are worth watching. One is going to make you very happy, and the other, I think, is going to maybe provide something of a light to fans who uh, have been hearing almost nothing positive about their team. So I'll start with the first one. It's Vancouver. Taylor, I think Vancouver is legitimately a good team. Like I, I think you were completely right about them in your previews. I did not believe in this team. I really did not believe in, in Vanny Sartini as a manager. And they've really found something with their back four shape. There's some fluidity there. Laborda, new, new signing that I think you know I was expecting to be a center back has played a little bit wider. Julian Gressel's tucked into midfield, which I both like and, and don't like, but it's very much working right now. They have creative midfielders, and they also have Julian Gressel like, hitting the ball as hard as he possibly can into his own attackers to <laughs> bounce the ball pinball style off of them into the goal. Like Vancouver beat Portland 1-0 over the weekend and were dominant. Vancouver had 13 shots, 58% possession. The Timbers had two shots. Two. Like, that that's nothing. Now, Portland, to their credit, are very injured right now. Like, very, very injured. And they have been basically all season long. We're seeing right backs in the uh, out wide and, and even higher up the field on the wing. We're seeing Santi Moreno, who really is a winger or, or maybe like a half-space guy, deeper in midfield as a number eight just because they don't have bodies. I think this was maybe the first time that Gio Savarese had a full bench this season. So, you know, there is an asterisk there, but Vancouver are a strong team. They're getting results. I've been impressed by them. The other team that I'll mention quickly before I hear what Goss has to say from the weekend is Chicago. We kind of talked about Chicago when when it was Taylor, you and I and and Goss and Paul that was on the show a few weeks ago now. We kind of used Chicago when when we were doing those, like, which would you rather take club answers (laughs) that that, uh, you were tossing out. Right, yeah, we used them as a punching bag. And I don't think Chicago are anything close to the gold standard when it comes to competing in this league, but they have quietly been a very solid team. You watch them play. They're not flashy, but they have the recipe of playing with a back four and having a striker that you can 
bank on getting you 13 goals in Kai Kamara, even though he's 87 years old now. They have a number 10 who can create chances, and it's not Shakiri. It's Brian Gutierrez, who's a young U.S. international, very good player, who's been playing well in that number 10 spot with Shakiri out with an injury. Former like, GA Cup player. There it is. I was I was kind of waiting to see if you were going to drop that in. I didn't know if it was true, but I'm, I'm proud of you guys for that. Like, this team has played some solid soccer. I'm not going to say good or great soccer, but they are very much a competitor. And with 62% of the league making the playoffs, we'll talk more about that later in a question. Like, Chicago are are on track. Like, they're sixth in the East right now, and they're playing better soccer than probably the most of the other teams below them right now on the table. So I wanted to give credit to those two teams. We hit a lot of the big boys yesterday. But yeah, Vancouver, Chicago, credit for what you're doing right now, because for both of those teams, we're seeing better than what I expected coming into 2023. What's the between those two? Because I think those are pretty good examples of like, it looks good. We've seen it fall apart at times already this year. Vancouver last week in CCL. So that it's sort of, for me, hard to like fully sell in. Which yeah. of those are you sold on for this season? Relative, like, to, relative to the other, Vancouver. I think okay. Vancouver is a solid team. I still think the West is worse outside of the top two teams in the East. Like I think there is more potential for some of these Eastern Conference teams to start firing really any week now. So between their talent level, I think they have more attacking talent, and I can see how it fits a little bit better. They have one of the most underrated defensive midfielders in the league in Kubas at the base of their midfield, some solid center backs. Like in general, I just like the caps a little bit better. I think their ceiling is a bit higher. But as CCL showed us, and we'll probably see this again this week, they are a tier or two or three down from LAFC. Like they are a tier or two or three down from Seattle. They are not able to compete right now for the top of the Western Conference. But like, I mean, the fact that we're even having this discussion about how they compare to LAFC and like how they matched up in CCL tells us something about where this team is relative to expectations coming into the year. Yeah, the tough part with Vancouver and the frustration for me is just it's it hasn't been linear at all. Every time you say over the last two years now, right, because Sartini took over two years ago midseason. Oh, okay, they figured out a defensive shape. They're getting better. And then two months later, it's like a whole different set of question marks and they Mm. have to come up with a new solution to a new problem. And that's, I think, for Vancouver fans, what's been frustrating is like they needed a defensive midfielder. They go against Kubas. Great. Now, all of a sudden, they don't have a goalkeeper because Maxime Crapeau just left and they're starting a 22-year-old. So then they fix that. Now they don't have a center forward. The best goalkeeper in the world has been signed. Thank you very much. Takaoka is the truth. I'm here for that because that's clearly been a bonus <laughs> for them. It just feels like they, their ability to build over the course of time has not been as fluid as we hoped it would be. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that has been Vanny. Like Sartini has thrown weird stuff against the wall when it feels like things are working. Yeah. I, I, I agree with most of that. The thing for me, and, and I guess why my perspective on Vancouver is slightly different, is I've never bought in before. Like, I, I didn't buy in in the offseason. I didn't buy. I mean, they, they legitimately did not have a starting caliber goalkeeper in MLS. They were shipping goals last year after Crepeau left for LAFC. Like, Kubas came in after the season had already started, like two months after the season had already started last year. Like, Gressel's coming in. You know, they haven't hit on every signing, and they've had some changes now in their front office and the recruitment side. Uh, Nico, the last name is escaping me, but essentially the guy who was doing some recruitment for them is gone. And I think that's a little bit of a shame without knowing everything that's going on here, because I think we're just now starting to see the players they brought in 
over the last 18 months or so really combined to be something. The, the real takeaway here, though, is that Taylor is correct and that I should start putting well, uh, real money down on when he says teams are going to be good. Well, here's the thing, though, is I guess when I when I say teams are going to be good, uh, maybe then you can you can believe in me. However, I, I did say Jordan Morris as a striker probably wasn't going to be a good idea for Seattle. And then he scored four while I was there. Uh, so that was one. And then uh, I had some buddies over. We were looking for a game to watch like later in the evening on Saturday. Uh, and Chicago, Minnesota was on. So I began by turning it on saying, like, ah, this is going to be brutal. Like, the Chicago are not good. And they immediately scored two goals in the first 30 minutes or so. To be I felt fair. Vindicated, I felt vindicated yeah. by the goal they conceded. Yeah, I was going to say, that's exactly what I was going to bring up. I feel like I, I should have mentioned that in my Chicago, like, hype speech. Chris Brady, who is the heir to Gago Slanina, another youth national team goalkeeper, like, Chicago are, are producing talent, like, between Gutierrez and Brady. There's some real names in here after they sold Slanina and Duran for a, a bunch of money for an MLS team. Chris Brady's young, still still at the very early stages of his career. He let one right through, like right on through. One of those that you never, ever want to think about again. And the joys of developing an MLS in some of these regular season games is that he really won't have to think about it again a month from now. So he, he it was ma- a bad moment, though. He made sure. two, I think, absurd saves at the end yeah. to keep it, which is this was the same story with Gaga. Gaga gave up some horrendous goals over the last two years, but then made massive saves where they were going to keep him on the field anyway because the value was to build him up and sell him. Yeah. But he earned his way back on. And I feel like we're because this is now, I think, two bad goals Brady has given up, where then he has also stepped up with big saves after. Well, Gaga Sonina is killing it in my FIFA career mode league, and I think that's what we all care the most Congrats. about. Congrats. Let's take a quick break, and we'll come back to answer some listener questions back soon. Hey, folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show, reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, It's going to be a chaotic situation. There's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly. There's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there. There's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain. There are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively. But for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. 
That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. Welcome back. We've talked GA Cup. We've talked MLS this past weekend. Let's do some listener question answering. The first one comes from Bobby Drexler. I just listened to your MLS Academy Territory podcast episode, and it sparked this question for me. What club would you say has the best academy in the world? What makes them different from other top academies? Why does having a great academy not equate to having a great first team? And what does FC Dallas or the New York Red Bulls do differently from other others in MLS that make them stand out from the rest? Uh, would either of you prefer to jump in with this que- to answer this question? I uh, default I'm, to Goths. Yeah, I'm, happy to, I'm <laughs> happy to start on this one. There's like two main questions in here, world and then MLS. I, let's start with the world one. And I think in the question and saying like, why doesn't it always equate to a first team? That's like the start of the basis of trying to answer this, which is every academy has to ask themselves, what is their purpose? And so you have academies where their purpose is to produce the best soccer players they can. Some academies are to help their first team win games. Some academies are to sell players for the most money they possibly can. And then some academies, I hope, are to help young people, you know, have the best life they can, whether that's becoming the best soccer player they do or providing educational and life experiences alongside it. Like, and there isn't a right answer in that. And most teams will obviously be pulling some from all of it. But that's like the first part of an academy is what is the point? And then once you do that, then you can create a process of how to figure things out. So... When you think about in the world, I think there are some academies that are great because the talent is great. And like if you run an academy in Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo and you have a decent amount of money, like there's going to players come through because it's the greatest soccer space in the world from population and talent. And then there are some where their process is really good. And I had an experience this week watching Genk play. Kevin De Bruyne, Thibaut Courtois, Christian Benteke, Stephen DeFour, all of them came through that academy. It's a, it's a town of 70,000 people, and they pull players from outside of that. But like that's an academy that's maximizing what they do at their best. So it's tough to like pick one. La Masia, I think, is the obvious like outlier, and I'm not going to say that because I just think that's too boring. So the Two that come what, to mind. Why do you think it's too boring? Just because it's Barcelona and there's been four yeah. million articles written about yeah. that? Fair. But I think but I think it's it's sort of that thing of like sometimes I do this a lot with my list of question answers where I will skip the obvious ones because it's like, ah, those are the obvious. I'm gonna find like the indie answer. But it is worth pausing to say, yeah, La Masia has the the style. They have the like they they're gonna play this like roughly the same tactical way, the same uh approach, same like ball retention. They're gonna school their players in that system, in that style. Uh sometimes they're gonna recruit maybe a little too internationally, but they have the proven track record uh, over decades of bringing through talent. So yes, I think they probably deserve in that deserve being mentioned in that conversation. Now that we've done that, keep this going. I would say the ones that follow up to me there is Benfica, Ajax, and I think those are the two big ones that come to mind first. So you have the Zag, you know, Dinamo Zagreb, Partisan mm-hmm. Belgrade. 
clubs like that. And that really is, they are at the peak of their country. And so like they get first dibs at the best Croatian players and credit to them. Like I've, I've been in talks that Zagreb Academy directors have given where they have an incredible process and they push it. It's not just a given, but to me, Benfica and Ajax are the difference makers because they produce the best players in the world. They sell for the most money, but they also add to winning titles. And that is hitting on all the things I talked about. And what I love, I think Benfica a little bit more, but Ajax still does it, is they also have an ability to bring in players and and turn them into their players. And it's not just at 12, like Messi going to Barcelona. Like we've seen Benfica consistently bring in 16, 17, 18, 19 year olds and reproduce them as Benfica players and then sell them on after that. So I think those are the two that stand out to me when, when you talk about Benfica, you're talking about facilities. And when you talk about facilities and coaching, all of that, you're talking about resources. And that's what makes great academies is like every team says, we love the academy. It's important to us. It matters. But the way you show it is with the money. They invest yeah. money in that. So they have the best facilities. Obviously, talent-rich area. Being in the EU is super helpful because they can pull from inside the EU without facing some of the other rules. But then a commitment at the first team to yeah. play the players. And that's the last piece that you need, which is you can't prove how good a player is if they don't play in a first team. And every single coach will tell you academy kids are worse than professionals. I talked about the cost-benefit analysis throughout a game that young players have. It's worse. And so for coaches, it's uncomfortable to play young players because they're not as reliable as veterans. But if the club has the ethos and pushes it, you have no choice. Yeah. And I think Benfica has done that the best while still winning, both in Champions League, right? They're getting out of the round of 16 consistently and in their league where they have competitors. They are not just the one team. Lisbon and now we've seen other smaller clubs come up. And then, of course, Porto. So that to me is like the gold standard. Yeah, and and there's levels to this, obviously. I don't think any MLS club is even remotely approaching being in the same conversation as an Ajax or as a Benfica. You can run through the rest of the list as well. You know, there's there's a bunch. But what differentiates a couple of the teams that are in the question from Bobby, FC Dallas and the New York Red Bulls, is that they're willing to play those players, right? And, And maybe we're starting to see a shift in certain clubs around the league, you know, the, the Bruce Arena example is the one that's been tossed around the most this year. Bruce Arena historically has not preferred to play kids because he chooses to go for the, the side of the cost benefit that's going to benefit him and the club. And there's absolutely a reason for that. I think he's cited in, in talking to media about this, like these kids are different. You know, these kids can't help us. They're good enough to do it today. The gap is either not as big or, or is in this case for Noel Buck and some of the other players they have up in New England is non-existent. So what what really has separated Dallas and, and the Red Bulls over the last you know X number of years is their willingness to play players. It's seeing Paxton Pomichol, despite his you know inability to stay on the field because of injuries, it's seeing him for the last four years or however long it's been. It's seeing Brendan Cervania and, and seeing him come through, play for the U-20s, getting minutes for Dallas. Edwin, Sur- I mean, you can run through the list. Now, not a lot of those players, you know, Dallas has had a lot of success, but zooming out to the rest of the league, like not a lot of those players are going over and dominating European leagues. Like we are still waiting for a young American player, a a player who's developed in either an MLS academy or another academy here in the United States and then moving over to a European team. We're yet to see that player 
become a dominant force, become the guy. Like, like that has not happened yet. It's not Christian Pulisic. It, it never has been at any of his stops. It's not Gio Reyna because he's never been on the field and he's still very, very young. Is it's Aaronson not the midfielders. Salzburg too small of a I, I think so. And, and really, there's like seven other players from Salzburg who also have one of the best academies. They're pulling players from Africa, from there's Europe, from Erling the U.S. Holland, who's yeah, quite that good. guy Erling Holland. Yeah, yeah. Was I mean, was there a crossover there? I don't, I don't remember. No, I don't, I don't I think remember. he played with. Either him. way, like there's Salzburg has eight Brendan Aronsons, like all doing his thing or doing it better. I would argue. So, like we're yet to see these players go out there and really, you know, make soccer theirs. Like, like demand attention in Europe in the way that I think a lot of us would like. But I think that's what makes Red Bull and that's what makes Dallas a little bit different. Is that they are willing and have shown a track record, even when maybe the player quality wasn't as high as they wanted. They've shown a willingness and a, even a desire to play those kids. Let me just jump in on the back of this and say, so those, I think you're 100% right, Joe. On the Red Bull side, I think a level of the success is the style. And I've talked about this a lot. If you have a consistent style, it's easier for players to move up because they understand their roles and responsibilities no matter what the team yeah. is. On the other side with FC Dallas, I think... Not all, maybe, but a ton of the credit has to go to Oscar Pereja. And in my experience, and I wasn't there for all of this, so some of this is me guessing or pulling from what I understand, but Oscar was obviously an academy coach. He played at FC Dallas, was an academy coach, academy, and then, you know, involved sort of higher up in the academy, went to Colorado, came back as the coach, and had a belief in the talent that was there because he had recruited it and brought it in. But I feel like... One of the things that they did well was they moved away from a purely white American and British model and into a situation in which Oscar could go into a family's home and say, trust me with your son because I will do what's best for him. And there was a level of belief. And I think that was a changing moment in Major League Soccer because I think a lot of the best players, and obviously I'm saying a lot of the best players in America are of Latino heritage, and a lot of them are not connected to some of the mainstream soccer in this country, and we're not connected to Major League Soccer. They're not fans. They don't watch it. They don't really care. I think that was a changing moment. And then the proof of concept, once it happened of, oh, yeah, and you can play pro and we'll sell you to Europe, and it all worked out. And I think Zendejas is a great example of this. And then they sold him to Liga MX maybe earlier than they should have, quote-unquote, but it worked for him. And I think that was even a selling point to more players of like, it's not just about us. Like, we will help do what's right for your kid. All of that was new. And and to believe it was new. And I think Lucci Gonzalez followed in that role. If you've ever talked to Lucci in any space or heard him speak in person, he mm. has a gravity to him where you want to do things for him. You want to play for him. You want to push for him. You believe him. And I think he sort of followed Oscar up there. And so a lot of credit goes to a lot of people. And the MLS Academy stuff has shifted so quickly. But I just don't want us to forget of like when the question is, why are these good? I think Oscar gets a ton of that credit. And you could argue in 15 or 20 years that he could be one of the seminal changing figures in American soccer. Joe, I feel like you've been an Oscar Pereja uh, vocal advocate for quite some time. So I'm guessing uh, Goss's thoughts there made you pretty pleased. I, I genuinely, I don't remember if I have been or not. I, I'm not <laughs> impressed by this Orlando team at all right now. That's for sure. Um, but I mean, he has done some good things, right? I think you can trace a lot I of this like stuff. I feel like your MLS assist days, you, you, you had a lot of love for Oscar Pereja and yeah. what he was doing and enthusiasm for his uh, I think 
appointment. To be clear, I what that, I all just said was nothing about him being a first team that's manager true. This is and true. tactics and whatever. Although he does get his teams to play hard. Orlando MLS is back. That's, I think, where a lot of that stemmed from, because that was that was genuinely very fun. Uh, but, I mean, yeah, we can boil a lot of this down, or at least some of it down to individuals. I think Gossi makes some really good points there about key figures in this revolution. Lucci is another really good option. Like, I, I chatted with Lucci a, a while back and very much agree with a lot of the things that, that you said there. There have been figures that have been willing to play these folks are seeing it now in Chicago, right? I mentioned them earlier. The fact that the mm-hmm. club is yeah. is developing players and is willing to get them on the field to continue to move them on. Now, the other piece is missing for the fire. Just to be honest, like it's been missing for Red Bull for the last little while and like it's been missing for Dallas for a number of years now is the on-field competitive side. Like they're competitive in MLS because MLS is designed for you to be competitive almost no matter what. But they're they're not impressive on the field. And so for a lot of these teams, if we're talking about integrating this with the first team, like that's that's kind of the next step. But I mean, we can we yeah. can go around in circles on can, this stuff and, and chat about this stuff. Can forever. I slam someone now because we haven't done it yet? And like, why not do it? You said like with those big, you know, academies, obviously the ones in MLS are not at their level and it's different. The L.A. team should be. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me at this point? Both for the Galaxy and LAFC. And I get LAFC won MLS Cup, and it's not really... It's not their job 100%, but Major League Soccer has asked, I think, consistently from communities, from fans, from sometimes governments, like, we will, we are going to help build soccer in this country. We're going to do what's right for soccer in this country if you support us. And so you do have a level of responsibility, I think, to help local players and to build the game where you are. The LA Galaxy are a train wreck. They play one homegrown who started for the U.S. men's national team before he ever started for the Galaxy to, like, force his way in. And Julian Araujo, sort of, they had to, like, acquire him. He went to the Arizona Barcelona Academy. That's fine, whatever. Galaxy, I think, can take credit there. And then some other players in the past. But, like, I don't know what they're doing. As an academy. And then LAFC has come in and, as I said, resources matter. They have put resources to it. They have hired some of the best coaches. They have some of the best facilities. It matters. They're pushing their players. None of them play in the first team. And, like, I'm, we're an expansion team is not an excuse anymore. It's been six years, five years, whatever it is. And they started the academy before they were an MLS team. So, at this point, there's not an excuse. And as we said... Those players will never be better than the players on your team. If it matters to you, you will play them. It doesn't matter to them from a first team level. They can, if they win trophies, maybe it doesn't matter to their fans. And so I'm the only one yelling, you know, from an apartment in New York City. So they don't give it to whatever's. Yeah. But it it has to be said that like this is the most talent rich area in this country it is one of the most talent rich areas in the world multiple european clubs multiple liga mx clubs have full time scouts that live in la and are scouting full time and the two mls teams that are based there have no one playing for them in major league soccer and it has in no way helped their club all right so gas has officially named and shamed the la 
based clubs. The only other thing I would add, you all have covered uh, plenty of ground on this one. Uh, you've talked about developing your players to play. Then you've talked about actually playing them in the team. The only other thing I would add is just that then you have to continue to develop them from there. Sometimes that's for sales. Sometimes that's for playing in the first team. But I think back to uh, Jose Mourinho. He has long been criticized for not playing academy players, not playing young players, not trusting the academy. And in response, there was a time when he listed the many, many, many different academy players that he had given their, their, their debut to or their first start, or he'd given them minutes and, that is technically correct. He has played young players. I think the the point there would be that like just playing somebody for half an hour and being like, oh, there you go. You got your debut. Back to the academy you go. That's where it falls apart. You have to then kind of continue to coach that player, continue to develop them, keep giving them the, those reps to see how they they flourish or don't. And then you have to figure out what to do from that point. But I think... It's also not just getting them into the first team and then being like, job done. It's then continuing that development such that they contribute to the team or get sold on. But I think that can be a tricky thing because that's when you're moving from the academy and the academy coaches and that sort of familiar blanket into the the, the club coach and having some of that sort of like, okay, new new atmosphere, new environment. Now I've got to figure out how to thrive. And that goes back to the conversation we had last week with Paul, where he was talking about Oscar Perea, knowing the academy kids who were coming mm. through and, and knowing their names and being able to talk to them. And I think that is such a, a difference maker for young people feeling, okay, people know who I am. They know why I'm here. I'm not just a hey, new guy. Get over here. Uh, and I think that probably goes a long way towards making those young players feel like they have an opportunity to play an opportunity to grow and not just an opportunity not to fail is, is how I would put that one. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I mean, it has to be something more, right? We talked about investment and I think that ties a nice bow on it. You have to be invested in wanting to do these things and it, it won't be for every club. Like we talked about this with PSG on the big thing. PSG has an excellent academy. It's a good academy. They're producing talent because at least they have a ton of resources and they're in a talent rich area, but you know, the next step isn't there. And for them that works. Uh, but in terms of really developing these players and providing them an opportunity in your system, there has to be something more. There we are. All right. Uh, that one answered. Bobby, hope you uh, enjoyed that one. Jory Kaiser with the next question. And Joe, coming to you for this one for obvious reasons. How do I learn all the nitty gritty tactics Joe is always talking about? Are there good YouTubers or podcasts for soccer tactics? Joe Lowry. Okay. <laughs> Joe Lowry would be a good place to start. I agree. I well, the thing is, if Jory is asking how to learn about the things, that clearly means I have done a really <laughs> horrific job of explaining them. <laughs> so I don't think I belong on that list at all. Uh, the the place that I start always because I think there is a visual component that is helpful with tactics. I'm um, not essential. Like I think you can you can talk through a lot of these things and have good discussions about them. But good it's day, helpful Joe. to see it played out. Yeah, I know, right? That was really good. Just because I started a podcast about soccer tactics, uh, I really felt like I had to, to dig myself out of that hole. Tifo, Tifo is the place I would start. Yeah. Uh, Tifo football, and they have a second channel now called Tifo IRL. They've got a cool board thingy that they move the little uh, pieces on the screen around, and it's great. And uh, JJ Bull and John McKenzie do a really good job breaking down games and breaking down teams and why teams are good and bad uh, it's important to remember that tactics aren't everything like like tactics are important and managers are important but they're not playing chess with their players as chess pieces so there's a limit to some of this stuff but in general i think they do a really good job probably a better job than anybody else in the space of discussing these things from a tactical and strategic lens so that's where i would start on youtube as far as folks that i i read and and learn from there's two really that i think have influenced me the most 
Matt Doyle is very much one of them. If you're an MLS fan or, or a U.S. national team fan, uh, on the men's side, Doyle's breakdowns are, are really, really good. And then Michael Cox is the other one, writes for The Athletic. And if you're more of a European soccer fan, this is the way to go for you. You'll get some nice annotated graphics. You'll get some breakdowns of, of, of big games. I think Michael Cox sort of developed and, and in some ways started this trend of tactics writing that has become so big nowadays. Uh, he's got a couple of really good books out. Zonal Marking. Uh, shoot, what's the other one? Something. Uh, Mixer. Yeah, in the mixer, right? Zonal marking is is one that's focused on sort of tactical development at a more macro level. Throughout time, I think in the mixer is, is focused on the Premier League. So good, good reads, both of those. And then the last thing I'd say, and I've started to do this a little bit more recently, is I watch a game and I, I have my own thoughts. I'll go through on YouTube occasionally and just type in, like, let's say, you know, we're recording this tomorrow and it's uh, Man City uh, Bayern, right, from the Champions League. I'll, you can go on YouTube maybe 24 hours or so after a game and search Man City versus Bayern Munich Champions League tactics. And there's probably going to be eight folks out there because this has become such a big industry. Like, there's going to be a, a number of folks that have video breakdowns of some of these games. And, and they might not all be good. None of them might be any good. And, and you might not agree with any of it. But it can be an interesting way to challenge what you've seen and to get some other perspectives on things that maybe you haven't thought about. So, I don't know, as you sit down and maybe watch a Champions League game or, or a World Cup game or you know whatever it is this summer... You know, maybe that's a, a decent tool for you to use to sort of think about, Jory, what you see and, and maybe what other people are seeing as well. So those are some tools that I would I would consider. I love the question, and I like uh, – Joe, I agree with most of what you said, and it's stuff that I've done as well. And I would just add, one, soccer is subjective because there are so few truisms. Basically, it's just goals. So, like, one part of the way if you're going into this is to trust yourself and, like, believe in what you see. That's okay. And if you hear someone say something else, it's always good to like learn from it and try and understand it. But have belief in like if you're watching a lot of soccer and you think you know what's going on, that there's a decent chance you do. The other is just trying to find the why. I think for me, like when I listen to Joe, he goes from this is what I see to why. And that's the part that I think a lot of people stop at is Man City blew Man U away down the right wing. But why? And I think a lot of people stop at the first point. And like, I think formations become a really simple way for people to do this of like, whoa, well, they played a 4 3 3 and they played a 5 4, whatever. Five, I can't even remember how many players are on the field right now. So this is a pretty bad example. <laughs> and it's like, but why? How did that affect that? When did that affect that? And I think just people choose to stop the thought process a little bit too early. I think a mm-hmm. lot of content does as well. And so it's like built into us. Of like, oh, Jamie Carragher said this because he had a 25-second hit. And that's all he can do in that segment. And so that's all it is. And it's like there's more to it. So I would just say, one, trust yourself. Two, try and push yourself to just keep thinking, oh, okay, I thought this was really impressive. I thought the way Darlington Nagby played for Columbus was really effective. Well, why? Oh, because he was always an option for these players. And every time it felt like they were in trouble, it came as to his feet as an outlet. Okay, now you start to understand what you're looking for from eights as it goes along, stuff like that. So I just think for people, there's a lot of internal stuff you can do in the way you choose to watch soccer. I know, Taylor, you take a bunch of notes. When you watch games, sometimes for me, that's just the way to collect my thoughts. I don't really look back at them all the time. But yeah. like as I'm watching the game, I realize if, if I'm noting something a lot, it's something that matters to me. Why does it matter to me? Why? Like what? Yep. What does it stand for? And I think that's all really good ways as well for people um, that care about this stuff. Yeah, I I, I really like the the note-taking aspect because 
Uh, usually if you do it in one notebook, then you have them there. So when you need to figure out what a team was doing, if you have goldfish brain, you can then go back and read those notes again. I also like it because you can start to spot patterns. If you have a note about uh, like Trent Alexander-Arnold moving centrally in the fourth minute, and then he did it again in the eighth minute, you can start noting, oh, that's happening consistently, or if there's an overlap or sort of areas of attack. I think sort of writing it down or sometimes even just drawing it out, I'll do that as well. I'll diagram things the way I'm seeing them to try to figure out what shape is happening or why somebody keeps popping up where they do. I think trusting your instinct and trying to kind of figure things out for yourself is a good way to do it because then you can watch those videos or read other people's uh, reports and see if like, oh, okay, I kind of had it right, but I didn't notice this or like, oh, I actually saw this and they saw that. And then you can start to compare and contrast because lots of people are right. Lots of people are also going to be wrong. Michael Cox is going to get stuff wrong or only focus on one thing and not yeah. focus on two other things that happened. It's, it's a uh, believing that somebody is infallible is definitely going to get you in trouble. Believing somebody is completely wrong all the time might not get you in as much trouble, but I think finding that balance is pretty key. Yeah, so I'll I'll tell a story here that I think is a perfect response to what you're saying there, Taylor. Like, I, I've done, and I do a little bit less of it now, partially because I think how I think about soccer has changed a little bit. But for a while, I was doing a lot of, like, individual match breakdowns. Like, for The Athletic, I would write, uh, you know, Atlanta United played FC Dallas, and, and, you know, here's how the game was won and lost, whatever. Right, so I would go through and do those pieces, and I was doing some during the heart of the pandemic, right, in 2020 when everything sort of shut down. And one of the games that I did was the U.S.'s results against Spain at the Confederations Cup in 2009. I was doing some retro looks at some of these games. And I I wrote about basically like, here's how the U.S. frustrated Spain. Here's some things that maybe they did wrong or some ways they're fortunate. And and sort of this is how they got the result. And, you know, after the article is published, I think maybe maybe we can see where this is going. After the article is published and I had made guesses based off of what I watched on the screen and, and what I thought had happened after the story was live, I ended up talking on the phone with Bob Bradley for a while about what had happened, right? And he was basically like, you know, yeah, you got this right, but like this whole section here, like this is not what we were trying to do, right? He's like, this is why we were trying to do, this is why we left the center backs unmarked. We wanted to apply extra pressure in midfield for XYZ reasons, and and here's why what you wrote is incorrect. And I think Bob Bradley in some ways has a bit of a reputation around the American soccer landscape for doing that kind of thing, which uh, to me... I was incredibly helpful. Like, that was a reminder to me in that moment. I still think about this a lot. Like, we're on the outside. Like, even folks that I, I truly respect and the people that I mentioned, like, they are all on the outside. It's helpful if you can know a few people and ask a few questions to clarify, like, maybe some general intent for the season or for a game or for a series of games or for a tournament. But, like, we are guessing. We will never be in those locker rooms. They will never let us in there to do this stuff because who like who does that benefit? Does it benefit them, right? So there is an element of all of this that we're guessing and trying to figure out like what's smart and what's not smart and, and how things are done. But I mean, in some ways, we're all just trying to get better at throwing darts at the dartboard. I love that you brought that example up because one, I love Bob Bradley. I think he's a genius. I don't think he's infallible, but I think he's a genius. But one of the things I assume that was part of this conversation, which I've always had with him and I've heard other people have with him is he doesn't like how people disconnect things. Right. Like it's all one game. It's all one game plan. It's all one team where a lot of people will spend an article writing just about the way the left back inverted as if it sort of is in its own bubble. And that's one of the things Bob has always said, which takes me to my last point here, which is I think learn about this stuff as much as you can. I think having this knowledge 
in my experience, really helps you skip a step with good soccer people, where if you can sort of talk to them on this level, you don't have to have the fake early conversation of like, oh, you watch soccer? I watch soccer too. Oh, have you heard of Borussia Dortmund? Yeah, me too. Like, you know, we have to have all these things to like show our cards to show where we stand. You can skip over a lot of that. But don't forget, one, that the players are human. So it's not just chessboard pieces moving around and two like effort and focus matter a ton and i think sometimes we all overcorrect into tactics yep and then it's like why did they win because they wanted it more because they were in a better headspace uh so a similar one not quite as high profile as bob bradley but (laughs) joe when we yeah right a little bit uh when we used to do richmond kickers weekly uh their then uh head coach the late david bulow would listen and then call me the next day after the show published to be like, nah, y'all got that wrong. Mm. Uh, and sometimes he was very complimentary on occasion. I was like, I can't believe y'all spotted that. But there were also moments when we would sort of be at a loss for a, like why something can happen. Like this guy stepped out and he did it three times. And at that point, it feels like it's a pattern. So I don't understand why that would be a thing that they wanted him to do because it leaves this space. And then I would talk to David the next day and he'd be like, oh, no, I didn't tell him to do that. That's just him being an idiot. Uh, and that was pretty interesting yeah. to get to get those moments of like, oh, no, players just do keep making the, the wrong decision on occasion. And that's something that you have to coach out of them or you have to factor in. But I yeah. agree with you. So often I think I err on the side of, oh, that happened this many times in a game. So it must be a thing that they were trying to do. And not really giving the individual credit or blame, I guess, in this case, uh, for those moments. And Joe, to your point about how they will never let us in the locker room to see these decisions, to understand these decisions, I would say that's kind of our fault. I think the media, but also the way people consume soccer uh, coverage is what do they get wrong? Why do they do this? What went wrong? Mm-hmm. And And I also don't think within that there is a willingness to actually understand what they were trying to do and i think if we sat down and and like why did you play this formation it it didn't seem like it was going to work right there they're already going to be annoyed because i've editorialized but i think there's always like a reason for what for these decisions there there are always things behind them that like factor into the the decisions made or the calculations that go into it but i think if we don't take the time to understand those or to give credit to those we just sort of miss miss everything that's led up to what happened and I think if you're a coach, you know that you're not going to get the benefit of the doubt when you sit Erling Holland, uh, even yeah. if there are 15 different reasons why you did it, and it kind of worked but kind of didn't. It's just going to be, oh my gosh, he benched Erling Holland. What yeah. a fool! And I and I think some of the way we as fans, as, as viewers, like uh, internalize stuff and watch stuff also could probably help shape some of the conversation and the way we understand the game. I have like so many more thoughts on this that we just yeah. do not have time for. The other, the, the last thing I'll say, and then like I, somebody's got to shut me up because we'll go for two hours, is I, I think that's a fantastic point, Taylor. Like I've had, I think better success in going and, and trying to talk with a coach or, or having a useful conversation with a coach or a player, like coming from from a curious angle rather than like a blame assigning yeah. angle, right? You know, you sit down with a player over Zoom or whatever, and and you try to to toss out some observations that you've seen, right? You try to, you know, read into comments from managers and you try to piece together what the team is trying to do, but then also give them a space to, to continue and pull that thread a little bit more. Like, I, I think there's so much room for us to improve how we talk and think about soccer, not just in this country, but around the world, right? I, in some ways, I think the U.S. Is, is ahead of other countries in terms of soccer discourse. Like, I think about Mexico and the absolute chaos and, and like, lunacy that comes down to you know Tata Martino playing really good soccer in in 2021 
And things went very much downhill from there. Although, like, no one, no one really seems to discuss the player pool. Like, it's all about Tata and Tata this, Tata that. And, like, it, it, that doesn't make any sense. Like, it is so illogical. We assign so much blame to some of these figures that, that don't deserve it and some that do and we don't. Like, there, there's just so much room for us to, to do better. And I, that's one of the things that I really do appreciate about TSS is that I think we try to peel back the onion a little bit to provide some of this this discussion that I think is sorely lacking in so many places. So, anyway, so Tata's a bad manager. Got that. I'm glad we right. got that. Confirmed. Yep. Cool. Confirmed. Perfect. 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 Yep. Perfect. Joe, yeah, I had a... I'm glad that we're bringing this to a close so that I can add one more thing. Uh, I had a high school English teacher who anytime anybody would begin an answer by saying, I was just going to say, he would immediately interrupt to say, why'd you change your mind? I think trying, uh, to, trying to cut out that sort of verbal crutch. Uh, and I do think a lot of managers are the same way, where if you begin with a, so clearly you all have been trying to do this, like beginning with clearly is going to like trigger an instant, like, oh, okay, we're doing this. Like you could just see the coach bristle a little bit at certain implications at an idea that I understand what you're doing better than you Alex do. Alex Ferguson is what you were referring oh, to. Oh, I forgot about that one. Yeah, that was a good one. My, my, my record of asking Manchester United coaches questions that they did not want to answer or refuse to answer is Bat three for three. So there you go. <laughs> Uh, it's a talent it's a talent all right let's take one more break uh two more questions to go back soon welcome back to the total soccer show from reed richards of the fantastic four you are the new usmt manager and have discovered a loophole in the fifa rules that will allow you to make a one-time trade for argentina's tiago almada however you have to give up Gio Reyna to argentina in exchange would you make this trade what if it was Musa in exchange or even McKinney? Joe, coming to you first. Would you trade <laughs> Tiago for uh, Gio Reyna? I did this because I knew it was going to make Joe sad. Oh, I, I both absolutely love this question and I despise it so much. Like the, I, I had so much trouble. I just stared at my computer screen for a good five minutes this morning, like trying to decide what I thought about this. Ultimately, what I decided is this. I'm tempted, but I think no to Reyna. I think no to Reyna. I think no to McKinney. And yes to Musa, as wow. much as I love him. So let me run through the, the, wow. the thinking here. I think Gio Reyna, injuries are a massive question. I think Gio Reyna is an elite attacking talent. I think he is a player in the U.S. pool that is best positioned to become the guy at a club if he can sort out his injury problems and some personality issues that are, are clearly a part of him as a young player. So that's Did that. something happen? Uh, yeah, I don't know if you. I don't know if you heard. I, I, yeah, <laughs> actually, yes, I did that a little bit better. But um, I think Gio Reyna is just a, a better soccer player with a higher ceiling than Thiago Almada. So that, I just that's need well you, Joe. With. Sorry to keep interrupting. I just need listeners to know that Goss is so clearly like loading his weaponry for his I response. I cannot believe this <laughs> answer. So I'm, I'm concerned for, for Joe. Joe, no, continue. No. <laughs> that's fine. Um, Weston McKenney, set piece threat. I think that's an elite skill at the international level and. He's like just an all-action guy in midfield. I think he has proven how important he is to this team, as has Musa, to be clear. Musa's the guy that when he's not on the field, and it's it's just Adams and McKenney, you're thinking like, let we need Musa back on the field to progress the ball to get it into the final third to Arena or to a Pulisic. But my thought is with players like De La Torre and Eric Williamson, there was a, a, a noticeable drop in ability and ceiling from Musa to those other two. But they have relatively similar skill sets in a way that I'm not sure the U.S. has replacements for Reyna or McKenney. So I I would go Almada over Musa, but probably leave the other two. I don't feel good about any of this, but that was my thought process on that front, Goss. I assume you're making the trade no matter what. 
No, mine was the exact inverse. Oh, Musa was the only question mark, and Weston and Geo were no brain. No brainers is tough, but I would make Weston wow. one for me. Mainly just came down to age. Like I would take the guy who's three years younger. You get more years. Mm. You get more chance. You get more time. And the set piece thing is great. All I heard at the World Cup was how the only thing that matters in international soccer is set pieces. <laughs> and then no one scored if a set piece goal. you can't kick the ball towards Weston McKinney, it doesn't matter if Weston McKinney can Forget the by. U.S. No one scored set piece goals at the World Cup every single day. We did a daily show. And it was, well, the only thing that matters is set pieces and set pieces and set pieces. And it was not the case. Historically, mm. it is. I think yeah, it's a fair point. point. I think Weston McKinney is a special person in the U.S. locker room. And, like, obviously this is a world that doesn't exist. So I don't know what trading a player at international level would do to a culture and a club, you know, and all that stuff. But um, I would take him – I would take Almada over um, Weston. And I think the age is is a big one. And then Gio, even if you do think Gio is a superior talent, which I don't think is a given – Tiago Amato was on the Argentine World Cup team and has been the best player on one of the best teams in MLS. Played about as much as Gio Reyna, to be clear. I'll just, I'll just toss that A hundred percent on Argentina. Yeah, true. Uh, how much would Gio have played for Argentina? <laughs> uh, if you ask Gio, all the games. Exactly. Right, correct. And then that. Why would I not take the opportunity to have a somewhat given in Tiago Amato versus the injuries and personality concerns of Gio Reyna? Like to me, if you if your scale you have Reina slightly above Almada, that off field stuff takes Almada above. Um, yeah, so that that was my thought process there. Musa was the hardest one for me because he is a similar age, and yeah. he is central to what he does. Because even with Reina, have we ever seen a team built around Gio Reina? And I know Atlanta no. United isn't even in the category of Borussia Dortmund, but like Almada has proved he can do it. And be the central force and have all the focus on him. And Musa, I think, has sort of done that. As well as I think he's less replaceable. And now you have guys at similar age as well. So I thought Musa was the hardest one. And you thought he was the easiest one. Which is, I I think all of that, I think everything you said was right. Like, it's a fake thing. But yeah, it's interesting. I want to keep it going though. Uh, Joe, are you swapping Brendan Aronson for Denny Buanga? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. No, I am for sure. Brandon yeah. Aronson is going to Gabon. That's an interesting one. Uh, and, and Goss, who are you swapping? to show up for the first home game. <laughs> Let's do this. Uh, and who are you swapping for uh, Camille Joswiak? Oh, God. Oh, my word. <laughs> if you had I would have entertained it. I know you would have. That's why I didn't. <laughs> um, uh, I, I've taken us to uh, to Breck Shea there for a moment because uh, well, you got to give your mind. answer. You got to give your answer, Taylor. Sorry, uh, my honest answer is like I, I don't think I know enough one way or the other. I think I probably oh. would, but at the same time, Joe has me very hesitant. I, I, I honestly think I would be way more negative about Gio Reyna if it weren't for Joe Lowry, who I think kind of pulls me back from. I think airing too much on the personality issues and also remembering that he is just out of being a teenager. So I think if, if younger like, than Almada, one year younger than Thiago Almada. I'll just yeah. Toss it out there. Yeah. I, so I think, and I don't even mean for like what could happen from here. I mean, more so because I did a lot of, you know, I said and did a lot of stupid things when I was 19 and 20. So I think, 
I think it's it's hard for me to say like ah you know, no get rid of that personality now. I think I'd rather keep all of them and, and see what they can all do. I can't bring myself to get rid of Weston McKinney for all the reasons yeah. mentioned, but I think the leadership locker room component is a big one. Uh, I, I, that seems to be a divisive opinion, by the way. People think that I, I like we Americans or I specifically value locker room camaraderie and does the locker room get a, along with the national team? But I think that's kind of the major selling point of the U.S. men's national team. It seems to be. It seems why dual nationals also, continue to choose over the, for the course US. of fourteen years. France went to three World Cup finals and then also left a World Cup early because they had a bad locker room culture and connection with their coach. So I think there's a ton of value in. So I think my answer is I'm keeping all three of, of the U.S. players. I'm not trading for Almada, but I am letting them know that they were on like the trade block, that they were in consideration. Maybe work on your set pieces. Maybe Good work on your management. finishing. Maybe work on your decision-making a little bit more. Otherwise, uh, Denny Boanga uh, is right around the corner. You never know what's going to happen there. Uh, any other thoughts on this question, gentlemen? Not for me, no. All right. This is hard. It hurt my brain. Well, we have a slightly lighter question, I think, uh, to close things out. Uh, David, coming to you for this one from Adam Peterson. Can you explain the USMNT lore of Breck Shea? I remember the Freddie Adu hype, but I honestly can't tell uh, if Breck Shea as GOAT of USMNT soccer is an inside joke or if he really was the next big thing at one point in his career. He was. I don't think it was ever as universal as what Freddie Adu was or other guys. I think even like at the same time, do you remember Charles Rankin? He was no. like the next Freddie Adu and he was going to be the best. He was like a 13 year old on the USU 17s and was going to be the future. Um, and Josie was in the same time period as well. Breck Shea was never that, but he was supposed to be the first, like in what we all talked about MLS Academy to first team to Europe, to champions league, to domination. Um, and he kind of, was like FC Dallas went to a MLS Cup final because he was one of the three best players on their team and he was gigantic, had great feet and was scoring goals and like there was a ton of buzz around that. Most I think is tongue in cheek cuz like he's a vibe and absurd and he was then and he even more is now. But um there's yeah. a conversation that some people have which was they had converted him to center back at times and that Real Madrid had interest in him as a center back, but he didn't want to play center back. So he refused to play there. I don't know if any of that is true. I can guarantee you I have zero sources on any of that. I don't know anyone who was in any of those rooms. Um, but there was a time where Breck Shea was special. He was a 1v1 attacking player that we didn't produce. Um, and there was a lot of excitement around it. Does that help answer any of that? Yeah, I think it does. I, I think you have to also understand that I think from the from the outset, at least for me, like his first uh, call up to the USMNT is with uh, like January camp, a, a camp cupcake, as it was known. Uh, and that was my sort of introduction to him. And I think from the jump, he was a strange character. Uh, I think there was a, like, behind the scenes where Dax McCarty, I think they're roommates in that one, but it's Dax McCarty, like, driving to training. It's them eating together. And Breck Shea is almost monosyllabic. He is very, very just strange, very unemotional. And, like, from that moment on, he is just this sort of 
like very good player or it seems like a very hyped player who also seems to be just a little bit his own thing and then you get the instances when he's on loan in england and flicks off his own fans uh, a lot of the photo shoots the the green pants the assault rifles uh the the like the artist background in a lot of ways the player that i feel like keep like most parallels in my mind who is obviously slightly more high profile is mario balotelli who has a crazy amount of hype uh in some ways justifies it especially early on scores scores a ton of goals as a very big presence but also has this crazy uh like off the pitch history and personal life that uh like i'm trying to remember oh bill simmons uh way back when had the idea of like the rodman theory i think it was which is basically a player reaches a point when the tyson zone is what it was when you believe anything that's written about them like whatever it could be brick Shea shows up in a dune buggy at a wedding oh wait he actually did that uh but like there there are so many crazy anecdotes that you could come up with about mario balotelli and i think the same goes for brick Shea, and i think that's where a lot of the lore intensifies off the pitch a hundred uh, being a key factor. I think one of the weird things about him was by the time he went to England, it was already over. Because I think he ended mm-hmm. up leaving. He was like 22 or 23. Yeah. And so the buzz about him, I think part of the other side outside of the like wild off the field stuff was like he was sort of the, I think to a lot of people, the answer of like, this guy should probably play small forward in college. But he plays soccer and he has good feet. He's not just like a lug center back who's like, no offense, but like Jay Demerit, where it's like, oh, yeah, right. That's what we produce. Like that guy works hard. And so I think there was a piece of the like, what if our best athletes play soccer, which at the time was such a Mm -hmm. rare thing. And he was the player everyone wanted those players to be, which was creative and, you know, dangerous and all that stuff. It then felt like by the time he left Dallas, and I don't remember if it was like, drawn out so much or something that it was already kind of like, eh, and he went to Stoke and nothing happened. And then it all sort of petered out from there. I also remember I didn't watch this game. Uh, our late co-host Daryl Grove was loath to ever say like anything truly negative about players, but I think he referred to it as one of, if not the worst performances he had ever seen in for the USMNT was Breck Shea. It was in a friendly, I think, but he like dribbles out of bounds twice and he miscontrols twice one time with it going out of bounds. Uh, and it was just like very obvious moments that I, I think he, he afterwards was like, I don't know if he just wasn't paying attention. It was one of the few times that I think there's been like an athlete who just didn't seem like they were really fully paying attention to what was happening on the pitch. And and that again, sort of encapsulates Breck Shea for me. So I, I don't even think of it as like lost potential or potential not realized. I think it's just, he was such a, a curiosity off the pitch that it, it almost like sort of like was bigger than what he did on. Uh, so that that's sort of my memory of Breck Shea. Uh, Joe, anything to add about anything that's been said so far? I just stared at the the pants picture, the rifles yep. picture, and the donkey picture yep. this morning as my prep, and that that's basically all I needed on this question. So for folks that, that haven't seen those pictures, uh, take 30 seconds, and I think you'll be up to speed. It's 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 up there with the uh, the 2002 team photo shoot that Pablo has written about extensively yep. in it terms is. of just how bizarre bizarre that that photo shoot was and some of his art seems to be as well. Uh, people can do their own googling on that, uh, but 
David, Joe, thank you both very much uh, for talking through some LQs, talking through Major League Soccer and GA Cup. David Goss, thank you. you you've been very busy. I'm guessing you're happy to be home, though you do uh, sport the tan of a man who's been in Florida. I feel like one, and my favorite thing in the world is LQs, so I had a good time. <laughs> uh, and Joe Lowry, you sport the tan of a man who lives in Arizona and is always tan. Uh, that's not true. Um, I, I do think, Taylor, we missed a huge opportunity to, to like, gaslight Gossam to thinking that they're called Laquas. Uh, that yeah. was a huge mistake, and I guess for the next person, we'll have to do better. Yeah, Laqua episodes? Those are the best yeah, ones. Episodes. Everybody loves yeah. those. Oh, you're already planning for my replacement. I wrote LQ Harsh in the Joe. text to these two. And <laughs> for the next Goss- person. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever it is, whenever that happens, yeah, yeah that's not... Tomorrow, it'll be Whoever Thursday. Whoever it is but yeah, uh, next week. For now, uh, gentlemen, thank you both. Listeners, thank you for sticking with us. We have gone well over an hour, which means we've gotten weird. I felt like the Breck Shea question had to come Ding after dong. the hour mark just so we could fully cover all the bases. Thank you again for listening. We'll talk to you again very soon. Thanks.